I say this, that sales has given me the confidence I've never had before because I went from being a degenerate drug addict that couldn't pay a, a cell phone bill to making more money than I, anybody that I ever knew in my life. I'd never in a million years did I think my life would go in that direction. Dude, this is the craziest podcast. Let it up podcast. Craziest podcast. All right, you guys, welcome back to the Let It Up podcast. If you're new to this channel and you want to know everything about making money in real estate, selling sales skills, building your business or investing, then subscribe below, tap the bell for notifications so you can be the first to know what makes our great guests so successful. Yep. And we get calls and emails every single day from people just like you. So if you're new to the business or looking to grow, reach out. We're happy to help. All right, guys. So today we're, we're super excited. We have with us Eric Klein, also known as the sales goat. Uh, I had to uh, chase you down a couple times on Instagram to get them here, uh, but we're we're thrilled to have you here, man. We're we're really excited to spend some time with you today and learn a little bit more about uh, what you're doing in your business. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Honestly, it's always an honor when anybody asks you to come on uh, their platform where other people are listening. Uh, for the simple fact, 14 years ago people didn't even want me in the same room as them. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always honored to be asked to do things like this. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, well, man. we're realizing like, I, I don't know, I think 14 years ago, people had like their blinders on and no one wanted to share what was working for them. No one wanted to share their SOPs. Yeah. No one wanted to share where they were getting leads from or what the, what CRM they were using. Yep. And, and I think what we're all realizing now is like we can all collaborate and share ideas and learn how to think bigger together without you know, yep. giving away the secret sauce. Oh, I'll give the secret sauce away. Right. I give my entire business model away on a daily basis. <laughs> Boom, you well, heard it here. Let's dig into it. Well, first, Eric, so who is Eric? Whew. All right, so my name is Eric Klein, 42 years old. I reside out of Raleigh, North Carolina. Just moved down here from, uh, or just moved here from South Florida. And um, I've been in the, virtual sales game for 14 years now. I've never done face-to-face -face sales. And uh, I am well over $100 million in sales over the telephone. And uh, I don't do Zoom calls. It's 100% virtual telephone leads and just making it happen. And um, obviously there's a lot more to my story, which I'm sure we'll get into. But my whole message is uh, I want to I want to change the virtual sales game with five easy sales steps. That that's my mission. Mm. All right, I'm gonna go through this very fast because I want to know you hear more Kiro about go. Mm. Mm. It's a it's a little bit of a <laughs> he's enticed. Eric, you'll get why very soon. He he, he doesn't get it. Uh, all right, so we'll start with the lightning round. These are uh, questions that are unrelated to uh, break the ice. So what's a skill that you learned when you were young that you still use today? Oh man, I am hard headed, bro. I am <laughs> super hard headed. And I think that's a skill when I want something, I'm going to go get it. Mm. It doesn't matter what's in front of me. I'm grateful enough to have my wife because she makes sure I don't run into too many brick walls going after what I'm looking for. I love that. Can you share a story of yeah. the uh, the most memorable time that you were hard-headed and it benefited you? 
the most hard-headed and it benefited me. It would be my my last company, man. We were getting ready to exit. We had, uh, I started a company from my bedroom, just pounding leads in a phone. And my wife was pounding leads with me. Literally, it was her and I in a bedroom. And uh, it was the first ever entered into being an entrepreneur. Mm. Like I didn't even know how to fucking spell entrepreneur. Still don't. And yeah. I was in that arena. And um, I, I remember my wife and I went from a bedroom you know, into a small office. And I told her, and this was being hard headed. I said, watch what we we're going to turn this thing into. We owned a timeshare exit company. And it was me being so naive of how big something could get. And it was again, all virtual sales, but my wife and I, within nine years, we built a company from me and her in a bedroom to have an over uh, 150 team members all under one roof in South Florida. I had a hundred people on the phones cranking deals out from nine in the morning till two in the morning, five, six days a week. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember the time where I sat back and I even told my wife, I'm like, holy shit, what have we done? Yeah. And uh, it was just not giving up. They tried, and here's the hard headed part. They tried passing legislations to shut my industry down. I hired the, the top lobbyist in the state of fucking Florida to fight these, these bills they were trying to pass. And uh, ultimately it led us to trying to exit that business. Yeah, that's, that's sick, man. That's pretty awesome. That's a cool story. Inspiring. When you, when you said you started the business in your bedroom, I thought it was going in the direction of OnlyFans for a second. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it had a good ending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, like, it was pounding. me and my wife <laughs> pounding something in the in the bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I had to. That too. <laughs> All right, good deal. So I got a couple of options here. Uh, who had the most influence on you growing up? Who had the most influence, man? It's gonna be my. Uh, it's gonna be my mother. Um, she is. My parents got divorced. I remember it was like a turning point for me, spirally not like out of control. Uh, I was in sixth grade and my parents got divorced and my mother, uh, I always watched her work multiple jobs. Uh, she was somebody that was up at fucking early in the morning, would do everything she had to at the end of the night. And she didn't baby us. And I look at it today as it was such a blessing. She never babied us. She taught us tough love. Like I've never seen before. Mm. And uh, I remember when my ass would act up, uh, she literally would pack <laughs> black garbage bags, put them on the front door. If I like stayed out too late or didn't come home for a day or two, and I'd come home to black garbage bags on my front door and I'd knock and she goes, I don't care where you're staying, but you ain't staying here. Mm. And it was just me getting your shit together in order to do, you like come in here. She provide, she did the best she ever could. And I look at her today um, she finally retired, but she had always was an entrepreneur. She had a little hair salon down in her basement. Um, never crushed it, but dude, she did everything she had to to fucking provide for me and my brothers. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. Awesome. That's awesome. What was the hardest decision you've ever had to make? What was the hardest decision I ever had to make? Hmm. I don't want to say this was the hardest decision I ever had to make, but 
Uh, it was probably the most life-changing decision I ever had to make. Can I answer that? Please. Yeah. So the, the biggest life decision, uh, making decision I ever made was back on August 9th of 2009. I was on an eight day run from fucking smoking dope crack the a drug that brought me to my knees when I was 28 years old. And, uh, I actually was up for eight days straight hallucinating like nobody's business. And, uh, it was a vision so clear. I used to say I hallucinated it, but I, I was around a gentleman named Bradley and he's like, bro, you didn't hallucinate. That was the universe telling you like, it's either this or that. So I was locked in a room with the dope man showing up to the back door until I was completely out of money. And I heard the SWAT team show up, helicopters flying above my, the building. I was literally pissing in the corner in a bath towel because I was too paranoid and messed up to go outside and even use the restroom. I had singed all my eyebrows, my eyelashes. I had blisters on my cheeks from burning the, the dope off the, the flame on the stove. And uh, I heard the ambulance kick in the front door with the, with the SWAT team. They, they rolled the stretcher down the hallway. And uh, I heard my mom out there arguing with them, saying, leave him, leave him alone, he's dead. My brother was out there hysterical fighting with the, the paramedics. And uh, they had said, on three, we're going to kick the door in and we're going to go in and revive them. And I was tucked under my sheets in my bed because I was freaking out. And I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I didn't think anyone heard me. And I was, I was living in Chicago at the time. And uh, I remember I heard they got everybody back. They lifted up the stretcher and they said, one, two, and they were going to kick the door open. And I opened it up real quick and I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm alive. And I was standing in a hallway by myself in my underwear. Mm. None of it was, was real, but it was the, it was the day my life has forever changed because I've since that day, I haven't put a mood or mind altering substance into my body yeah. because I knew it was either life or death for me. And on August 9th of 2009, I decided to start living because I just didn't want to die. Yeah. Wow. Holy shit. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't know why my intuition's telling me to ask this question, but at some point in time, there's, um, Whenever you speak, you have a projection in your voice. It's almost as if something hip happened to you where it's like, speak up. Is that something that you feel that occurred? Or am I just hallucinating this? Oh, man, it's great. If my wife were sitting beside me, she would be laughing right now because she's like, Eric, you talk so loud. She's like, <laughs> you, you can't not talk loud. There was a day where I was very... I had a very low self-esteem. I had social anxiety. I couldn't talk in big crowds. I couldn't, like, I couldn't do any of that. I would have panic attacks when I would go to a grocery store and there was too many people in the aisle. So I, I, I never spoke my voice. Like no one ever really knew who I was, what I was about. Cause I was always ashamed of who I was. Mm. And, uh, I say this, that sales has given me the confidence I've never had before because it's, I am, the more deals I closed, the more confident I got in who I was that, hey, I can actually be really good at something. And, uh, and I'd never felt that before in my life because when I got clean, I was heavily tattooed 
And I was in the, I was in the union up North in Chicago where like my appearance is okay on a job site. But when I got clean and I went down to South Florida, there was no union and you can hire a truck full of, you know, foreigners to build a house for you. So there was no place for me to get back into construction. And I, I jumped behind a phone, a guy from Brooklyn, New York, gave me a shot on the phones and, uh, man, as the deal stacked up, my confidence started building and it ultimately putting, you know, stacking a lot of wins together over 14 years. I'm just really confident in the person that I am today for the first time at my, you know, I like who I am. So I, I want to voice that. I love that. Projects. Yeah. Projects. It, that's so important though in sales too, because if you're inauthentic on the phone, talking to someone else, you're, you're creating some other fictitious image and then you're in your own way at that point yeah. in time. But owning it and yeah. sitting in it, you can maneuver around it way more seamlessly. One last question for lightning round and we'll jump right into it. If you could spend the whole day with someone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Dude, this is the craziest podcast. I'm telling you. <laughs> At dinner it's last a, night. It's going to get crazier, bro. No, but the like last night we had this. We asked this question at my dinner table between me, my son, and my wife. I'm like, what? Uh, and I, I was stumped when they asked me that. So let me uh, give this some thought because they had great answers. And I'm like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> so I guess I would want to, and this, this may sound a little weird. I think I would want to go back, man, and spend a little bit more time with my grandparents. Mm. For the simple fact, my son asked me a question while we were having this conversation and he goes, tell me a little bit about Grandpa Klein. And I couldn't tell him much. And uh, I'm 42 years old now and uh, it sucks that I couldn't tell my son what his great grandfather was like because I didn't have too many memories of him. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a good answer. No, but the craziest thing when you think about it your great great grandkids will never say that because you created like a social platform that they can always revert to. It's like a historical yeah. diary. They're like, look at this maniac. Yeah. <laughs> great yeah. great gramps was tatted. Ma, I'm getting two tattoos right now. I'm five. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> he walked yeah, around with he walked around with a bat too. <laughs> no. Hey, I don't don't think I don't have these damn bats at an arm length away. <laughs> Dude, I love that. So you got your first opportunity on the phones from the guy in Brooklyn. You know, you had, you went through that whole phase, you know, in your past. And that's heavy, man, because for you to get that, get out of that habit, not many people make it out first and foremost. Uh, but a lot of people who do, they fall in love and they get addicted to another process they fall in love with. So can you just walk us through being exposed to it until you fell in love with that process? You're talking about sales. Yep. Yeah. So I, again, at 28, I went down to South Florida. Uh, I literally had $8 to my name. When I went to South Florida, I went down 28, no license. It was revoked in two states. I had uh, years of, of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And a friend of mine put me on a plane to go down there. And uh, I had 60 days left on my insurance, which allowed me into a treatment center. Mm. When I got out, uh, I, I was trying to find a job, but nobody would employ. I was like, I was almost unemployable because of all the tattoos that I have. And um, the I was living in a halfway house at the time. And uh, I, I went home one night 
And there was a sign hanging on the door. It said telemarketers wanted $15 an hour. And they would market to all the halfway houses in the area and get recovering drug addicts to come and work in these call centers. And I remember I, I, I called the guy before I even went there for an interview. And I said, listen, it was talking to the HR lady. I go, I just so you know, because I was sick of getting turned down from interviews. Yeah. So I said, I want to let you know who's getting ready to come in for the interview. I have a scheduled interview tomorrow. I go, I'm tattooed from the neck down. You're going to see them on, on my hands, my neck. I said, I don't have any on my face. I said, I'm living in a halfway house. I don't have a license. And at the time I had like 80 or 90 days clean. Mm. And I said, trust me, I want to change my life. And I have all intentions on staying clean. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Come in for an interview. So my wife brought me to, or she was my girlfriend at the time, brought me to Ross's or TJ Maxx. Cause I did, I had no money and uh, she bought me an outfit to go to an interview and I keep the picture in my phone of, of the outfit I wore to that interview. And prior to that, I worked as a bus boy in South Florida for two weeks and they gave me a check for being a bus boy for two weeks for $146. And me and my wife have kept that pay stub ever since they gave it to me. So I, I go to the interview they hire me as just a telemarketer, like the cold caller. Yeah. And I remember showing up the first day, and this was a company that had like 200 plus guys and girls on the phones. And I was like, I walked in nervous as shit, but they all looked like me, taught like they, you could tell they were rough around the edge, dude. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, I might fit in here. I saw guys with, uh, tattoos on their face. Oh my God. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> so they put me through two weeks of training and uh, they put you out on the floor. And I remember I was never good at school. So I don't retain shit good classroom style. Like I have to get in it in order to fuck up, fuck up again, and then I'll get it. Right. That's just the way I learn. And um, I remember they put me on the floor and they had a new training class come in and they did training classes of like 30 people. And I, I know this is a long story, dude, but it's a good story. That's great. And so they put me on the phone and part of the class was, they said, you want to match the person's tonality. Like, so I get this Hawaiian guy on the phone <laughs> and he was like, Hey brother. And I was like, cool. I've been to Hawaii. So I start talking. I'm like, Hey, brother, what up? And they were listening to my recording in the new training class. So the, the trainer comes running out. He rips my headset out. Mind you, these are a bunch of New York dudes. Yeah. And he rips my headset out. He's like, you either get back in training or you go home. But I wanted to do this damn thing, dude. Like, I'm like, holy shit. I think I could get good at this. So I went back into another two weeks of training, came out. And uh, I was, for the first time, like, because I got my shit together, I was getting my shit together, I was getting clean, and I was like, I was bringing my book home every night studying because I knew I had the work ethic. Like, I was at the very bottom. I was, like, I, in my opinion, I couldn't went any further down. So I was like, yeah. I was studying every night. I wanted to get good. I was rehearsing the script, watching myself in the mirror. I would voice record my shit, listen back to it. 
And I be within six months, I became their number one fronter. Mm. And there was a shit ton of people here. And the owner of the company was like, dude, your numbers are phenomenal. We want you to be a closer. And I'm like, there's no need for that. I'm making more money than I was in the union. I was like, I'm good. I'm good right here. And he's like, no, you have to be a closer. Fast forward. I became their number one closer out of 200 plus people within a matter of a year and a half. Awesome. Wow. That's great. It just came to me. One of my first coaches, Steve, he would always say, he's like, you know what the difference powers. Yeah. He's like, you know what? Sorry, not difference. He's like, you know what the similarity is between a a cracked addict, a crack addict and a top performing salesperson. I'm like, what? He's like, they think of one thing, but they're two different things. One thinks about crack, nothing else. The other one thinks about the next sale, nothing else. And they're not, Thinking yep. that they're smart enough that when they're being taught something, they question it because they're so like they're so smart. They just implement it and hit it running. The crazy part yeah. is, is that I'm right now one of the things in like NLP, neurolinguistic programming, is matching the tonality exactly. So what you did was technically right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Matching yeah, it yeah. to a T, and that's like it builds crazy on like you know rapport just by sounding similar, and that's like an advanced mm-hmm. technique that just came to you almost like all right, I'm going to be biblical with be what who they're you teaching. Need them to be, yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. When did you know you had something going here where you're like, I'm going to go independently and start doing the, uh, um, what's it called? The uh, timeshare. Timeshare. Timeshare exit. Yeah. So what, how did you decide that? was to do my that? first business. So I'll, I'll, so for a year and a half, like I would say six months into it, once they made me a closer, um, like I got super serious about what I was doing because I, it was one of those things. I wanted what he had. I wanted that car at this point. For the first time, I'm like, holy shit, dude. Like, I I think I got something here. Yeah. I was making more money than I was in the union. Um, I was getting consistent fat commission checks. It was the first time I was like, the work I put in is what I'm going to get paid on Friday. So it was all up to me. I was working a commission job for the first time. So when they made the whole year and a half I was working there, I would show up every single day before anybody in the company. And I would be standing with my lunchbox waiting for them to open the doors up. And I would be the last guy in the cubicle where they were shutting the lights off saying, Hey, Eric, it's time to go, dude. Like the manager was telling me we got to go. I'm done. So I did that for literally a year and a half. And I was watching the way the owner of this, I'm forever grateful. He gave me the shot. But after a year and a half of doing that, I realized I actually cared more about how his company was running than he did. Yeah. And it wasn't an entitlement thing. I didn't want to be a manager. I want, I was like, all right, I got this down enough where I can go do my own thing. And I didn't even go into the same industry that he was in. Somebody brought me the idea. They were like, Eric, there's this model where you can get people out of timeshares. And I was like, cool, what's a timeshare? And they explained what a timeshare was. And they're like, we can break the contracts. I was like, cool, where can I get some leads? And he gave me a stack of leads, paper leads, like this big, you know, name, number, and what timeshare they uh, owned. And I took that stack of leads And me and my wife ended up in a bedroom. We had two cordless phones. She would pound the phones. She'd get somebody on. She'd throw me that cordless and she'd pick the other one and 
she'd start getting someone else on. Love that. And I would go upstairs to where she could keep talking. And then it, uh, once we got to a certain milestone, we got into an office. And then, um, dude, it, when I say it blew up beyond my wildest dreams, yeah. it was the craziest shit. So we went from, my wife is a recovering addict as well. Mm. She was a heroin addict. I was a crackhead. We were making, it, it's crazy, within seven years of building our very first business, we had 150 people working for us. We were doing 34 million in gross sales a year. And me and my wife were netting, taking home $8 million a year. Wow. And I was like, what the fuck? How did we even get here? <laughs> yeah, so that's where we were at, man. That's kind of the, the journey of me saying, all right, thank you for the education and giving me a shot, yeah. but now it's time to go do my own thing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you transition from the timeshare business into wholesaling? Well, wait, before that, I just, I have to ask this question because going from being an fun. addict to making the money, how does that, like, the, the, obviously there were struggles there where you were just about to go crazy. How did you guys overcome that? Or was there like any like stories that you can share? Dude, that's a great question. So yeah. the, yeah. I went from being a degenerate drug addict that couldn't pay a, a cell phone bill to make it and knowing nothing about money, nothing about money to making more money than I, than anybody that I ever knew in my life. Obviously at this time I knew other people that made really good money, but for me, it was like, I'd never in a million years did I think my life would go in that direction. So I, at the time, a wise man once told me, watch your spending. Mm. Because we went from nothing to millions. And at the time, I was spending recklessly. When I say recklessly, I owned a $7 million home on the intercoastal in Fort Lauderdale. I had a, over a $2 million home in Chicago. Over a $2 million home in the, the Keys. I had all the cars and watches and shit you could think of. And um, because I never thought like this, this run was going to end. Yeah. Um, me and my wife were getting ready to, we were, we we're getting a mortgage on the, the, the home we bought on the intercoastal and the banker. He was like, dude, what do you do? And I was like, bro, I own a timeshare exit company. And he's like, this is a cash cow. He goes, I've never seen anything like this. And uh, he goes, have you ever thought about selling this business? And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't know you could sell businesses. Like I was that naive. I didn't even know you could sell businesses. Yeah. And he goes, let me put, let, let me see your books. So we took our books, we sent them over to uh, whoever he sent them to. And he came back to us and he goes, dude, let's put a package together and let's sell this thing. And I was like, how much do you think we can get for it? And he goes, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that. Let's get a broker involved. Mm -hmm. So they got a, uh, they came in, they did a uh, financial audit. They did a structure. They put a pamphlet together and they sent it out to like two, 300 private equity firms. We got, quote, we got offers. Our highest offer we got was for a hundred percent of the business, 147 million. Wow. And that offer ended up backing out. We agreed, we had three offers that we were entertaining. The one we went with 
which they did in a financial audit, a business audit, everything. We passed all the sniff tests. We signed an LOI for them. We had a closing date uh, scheduled 60 days out for we were selling 51% of the business for 54 million. I was retaining 49% to grow it and then do another sale. Mm. Long story short, two of the largest timeshare developers, which I cannot name them due to my lawsuit that I settled on, they sued us for just ridiculous shit mm. because 65% of my business model was disrupting the notes they held with the timeshare uh, people because the average timeshare sold for $25,000. Well, they targeted people that can't afford $25,000 and they would charge them 10% up front and then they would finance the rest in-house. So it was in-house paper mm. at 11 to 21.9%. Well, I was signing up 650 people a month and 65% of those people were defaulting on that paper. Mm. So they wow. ended up coming back and suing me, my wife, and my companies. And I ended up settling for millions and millions of dollars. And I had to injunct myself from the industry. That was part of my settlement. Damn. Wow. So just to understand it correctly, they were basically saying you're the reason why people were starting to default because they saw an exit. So they said, screw it. Why pay any more if I'm going to get out of it anyway? Yep. Got it. They would pay us a fee. And then we would go and help them dispute the sales presentation mm. due to deceptive sales practices, misrepresentation. Um, and uh, they were opening up PayPal accounts and credit cards in people's name without them knowing. Wow. Wow. They would have them sign off on a, on a paper and then they would open a credit line and that's how they would get their 10% down. Wow. But to, to answer your story is I was reckless. I was spent, I was making $8 million a year. Yeah. So when I had to stand in front of 150 team members at one time and say, we're shutting the company down. Mm. So I went, I, you know, I had what, $11 million in, in properties that just me and my, my kids went to and my wife. And I was, dude, I had a panic attack. Yeah. Like I didn't know what to do. We were able to liquidate everything. And, uh, it's a blessing in disguise today because this is what happened is I, I've never worked on myself internally. I went from being a degenerate drug addict to a, a reckless guy making shit tons of money. And uh, I, I wasn't working on myself. So I was full of ego. Mm -hmm. I had like I, me and my, I was treating my wife like shit. I wasn't a good husband. I was neglecting my kids. It was all about the money for me. And don't get me wrong. I love money. But um, not when it's at the expense of neglecting my wife and kids and my marriage and yeah. all that shit. So I, I say today it's a blessing I didn't sell that company because if I would have got my hands on $54 million back then, I think I would have started using drugs again and my wife would have left me and ultimately it would have killed me. Mm. Wow. You know, they say money's a tool and when you come from that kind of like uh, – low of a low you're trying to use it as a tool to prove to everybody that you're not that yep. you're, you're big shit you're hot shit but then to go back again to like having to lose that that takes a big hit on your ego too so it's almost like you had to get humbled by the marketplace to be who you are today which yeah. is more of a, an influence and a leader to many more people i literally got goosebumps when you just said that bro you're welcome i, you I got <laughs> my ego got checked and i got humbled right when i needed it 
And um, I can say today, my marriage is stronger and better than it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, my wife is still my business partner today. She's been my business partner since day one. Me and my daughter have an amazing relationship right now. My son, fucking everything's phenomenal. Business is running great. Life is good. Health is good. And uh, I'm good where I'm at. Love that. Why the hell real estate? So when I, when I shut down the business for a year and a half, I was lost. I almost went into a, a deep depression because I was that business. Everyone knew me for resort release in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, in the massive call center that I had. And, and when I lost that business, I'm like, man, did I get lucky? Was that like, because everyone says that normally doesn't happen on your first go around there for you to do what you did. Yeah. So in my head, I'm like, I was beating myself up. Can I do it again? I was contemplating going and working on a sales team. Like, mm -hmm. do I go and just work for somebody? Like my confidence kind of got taken from me. Like back then, Grant Cardone used to call me up and be like, dude, come down and speak to my, my, my crowd. So the phone stopped ringing. My friends started, started fiddling away where it's like, Nobody was around. And I'm like, holy shit, I had a lot of fake motherfuckers around me. Yeah. And um, I remember it was a Wednesday and my, my wife came into the room and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, man. Like I was kind of, I was lost. And someone brought the idea. They're like, Eric, this wholesaling model was just like your last business. It's lead generation, phone sales and fulfillment on the ass end. They're like, you don't need to know shit about real estate. And I'm like, are you sure? So I did for like six months, I did research. I was on the fence of whether or not I was going to do it. And my wife came in the room one, one morning at like eight, nine o'clock. And she's like, dude, what are you still doing in bed? She's like, go out and do something, right? She's like, I don't give a shit what you do, but go do something. And I made the decision I was going to get into the wholesaling space. She set up a computer like, dude, we started like, like we were brand new entrepreneurs. She set a, 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 a computer up, two computers in a room. And, uh, she got me a headset, a fucking lap or, uh, I, I, I had my CRM. I started generating some leads. It was me, two computers. And, uh, my first 12 years, dude, I still don't know shit about real estate. FYI. <laughs> And that's okay. I don't want to flip. Yeah. yeah I don't want to flip homes. I don't want to be a landlord. I got in this model to build it to where I can sell it. Good for you. Because it's the exact business model as my last one. Yeah. And if, if I was that close to selling my last one, I'm like, shit, if this model is, is identical to that, I can build this and sell it. Mm -hmm. So my first 12 months in this space, I did 118 contracts. I did 2.6 million in assignment fees. Nice. And I ran it at a 58% profit margin. So I think I netted like 1.5 million. Holy shit. That's great. First 12 months, dude. And I've, I never flipped a home. I didn't know what a comp was. an ARV was, I didn't know any of that shit, but I knew how to, how to sell. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, it, it just goes to show you that, you know, you had the, what is it? Attract, convert, deliver, right? You had the lead yep. generation machine. You knew how to convert people and you had to deliver the final product. I forgot who said this. It was like Brian Tracy said, the first million's easy. The second one's in, oh, first one's hard. The second one's inevitable. 
And it's almost like you were like, I need to be able to build that life because you had a taste of it. And for you not to, to regress back, that that's horrible. That's hard. Yeah. The, the one thing yeah. for coming, so you're, you've been up all these stages and then you start building the wholesale business your first year in there. When did you start thinking, hey, let me start recording myself and putting out videos on social media? How did those dots connect? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I never had intentions on, on going down that path. Yeah. When I jumped into wholesaling, it was solely to build another business. And tr my goal is to exit a company. Like I was too damn close to doing it, to, to give up on that dream. So that's my, my goal is to ultimately exit. But as I got into this space, I still was going to like masterminds for help. Mm -hmm. And when I would go to these masterminds and I'm like, I knew that wholesaling was, was sales and marketing. I'd never, never once did I say I was getting into real estate and I was going and listening to the people I would pay to be in their masterminds. I would listen to the information and like the baseline KPIs and everything they were saying. And I'm like, that's not fucking right. <laughs> I would sit in the back and just be quiet, but I'm like, what they're saying is actually not the best information for somebody to be learning. Like for the, in this industry, I heard for the first time, you get on the phone with somebody, you want to disqualify them. Mm. And I'm like, I've never heard that in my life that you want to disqualify a lead. I've heard you want to qualify them. And when you realize they're not qualified, then you can get off the phone. But I've never heard you want to get on the phone with someone and disqualify them as fast as you can. So Obviously I was going to the, I joined at mastermind early on and within, uh, within 90 days, I was doing bigger numbers than anyone in the mastermind, mm. including the guy holding it. And he was like, bro, what is your fucking background? And I told him my background and then I started teaching his entire mastermind, my sales process. Mm. So I come back and I, just started getting back into social media because my, when I was going through my last lawsuit, my, my, my attorney said, you have to get off all social media platforms. And so I shut all my, my social medias down for about two and a half years. And when I got in this space, I turned them back on. And my wife, after going to a few mastermind and, and, you know, slowly building my audience back up, I was like, I'm going to hold a free sales training just to see how many people show up can I so I can serve this community of wholesalers because people were were I they were focused on the wrong thing if you're going to be a wholesaler you need to focus on how do you get a lead and how do you talk to that lead and convert that lead. yeah like that's the only problem you have in the beginning so I held a a, a free zoom and over a, a hundred people showed up and I was like holy shit I wasn't expecting that and they all stayed on with me for two and a half hours. Yeah. And my wife was like, holy shit, that was cool. And the only reason I had a hundred is because we realized my Zoom account tapped at a hundred. <laughs> so she got me a bigger Zoom account. And I was like, a couple of weeks later, I'm like, hey, I'm going to do another live uh, free sales training. You sign up with this Zoom link. And dude, I showed up. There was 250 people that showed up. Nice. And I was like, holy shit. And they all stayed with me for a really long time. Yeah. And my wife finally, she was like, Eric, you got something here. We're like, they want what you have. Why don't you start putting this shit out on social media? Yeah. And dude, I just started 
I hired a full-time camera guy and uh, people think I'm conceited because I call myself the sales goat. But what that actually stands for is the greatest onboarding acquisitions training. I like, I like that. that. That's actually pretty dope. So I branded myself as the sales goat for the simple fact I do believe I'm leagues above what most people are in this industry when it comes to doing this virtually over a telephone. I love that. And in, in the beginning of the the podcast, you were talking about your five steps that you try to teach to people. Yep. Yeah, I wanted to go into that. Yeah, let's, yeah, because I know the mindset is so important that I'm happy we covered a lot of that in there because for, for Eric, for you to do what you've done and to be where you are right now, that should give the courage to anybody who can, who has those limiting beliefs to know that they can do it. It just comes down to being committed to wanting it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So can you share a little bit about those five steps? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's changed the wholesale game for anybody that's jumped on this, this five steps. So I, I am a firm believer that my biggest hurdle in this industry was the other people doing it. How was I going to separate myself from the industry when it came to the conversation the homeowner was going to have for the hundredth time? Mm, right. Right. The, these, these homeowners already know the questions that people are going to ask them before they ever pick the phone up. Yeah. They know the pitch better than most wholesalers do. Oh. So I knew in the very beginning, because I saw there was a lot of amateurs in this industry and I'm like, damn, these home, we're all using the same VAs. We're pulling the same list. How do I get separate from the, the pack? And it's, I've used these same five steps now for 12 years. I've created it. it. It's not a white label. I didn't take it from anybody. It's me being embedded in call centers for 12 years, having a hundred people on the phones. And if you're going to have a hundred people on the phone, they all need to be saying the same thing yeah. in order for you to be able to get, you know, track your progress and your results. So number one, and, and mind you, I do this all virtually. I've never went, I don't do it belly to belly. So there's little things I do that matter that some people may overlook. So step one is your intro. Mm. You want to set realist, realistic expectations of what's going to happen on the call. I let all the sellers know by the end of this phone call, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to get an approval with an offer or a denial with a reason. Why do I say that? Because no one else fucking says it. And I want to do a takeaway in the very beginning. Like, Hey, we actually might not even buy the house that everyone's calling about yeah. Yeah. because we've all heard. I got the hottest house on the block. Everyone calls me. So I let them know in the very beginning, we're going to put your home through an approval process to see if it even qualifies for our buy box. Yeah. And then because we're doing it virtually, I know at the very end, I'm gonna make an offer and I never want them to ask, what's your name? What's the name of your company? So I get them engaged in my intro and I say, hey, grab a pen and paper real quick. I want you to jot my all, all my information down. So I have them write my name down, first and last name, the website, the, the phone number. And at the after I ask them to write my number down, I say, hey, just so I know you have it right, can you repeat that real quick? And I want to know they actually wrote my number down. Yeah. Yeah. Someone can remember your name, your, your company name, your website. No one remembers phone numbers anymore because these fucking smartphones have made everyone stupid. Yeah. 
right? That's a good approach too, because it, it shows you have control of that conversation because exactly. you're, you're given the direction. I want to gain control in the beginning. I want to know when I'm asking them to do something, are they going to do it? And then I set expectations about what's going to happen on the call. Then we, and I, I have all of my, my steps timed for my team. Mm. Your intro should take you about a minute, minute and a half. Then you go into fact find. Mm. You want to figure out why they keep answering this damn phone, listening to people like us. If someone says, I don't want to be a landlord, completely understand that. You know, what's crazy is the last three homes that I've bought have come from people that don't want to be a landlord. This one in particular, this lady was a landlord for 25 years, had a great run. Then she let her granddaughter in the house. So I use third party stories to relate to them. I say what their prop, like we were able to get her granddaughter back. The only way she was going to move out is saying I was selling the house. And then we got her $50,000 at closing, which she was able to pay off $25,000 in credit card debt. Mm. I understand you say you don't want to be a landlord, but why? Yeah. And then I shut the fuck up and let them try and talk. <laughs> so, and that can be used for anything. Like I want to downsize. I have a third party story I use for that. I'm going through a divorce. I have a third party story. So I, I relate to them. I get to, I get underneath why they really are selling because at the end of the day, the house gets us on the phone with them. But why do they need access to the cash that they're going to get from the house? Yeah. So many people will focus on the house and they forget about the, the individual they're on the phone yeah, with. Motivation. So we go into fact find. And in fact find, you want to find out certain obstacles that you know are going to come at the close. You want to find out how long they've been married, if they're married. Because at the end, when someone says, I need to talk to my spouse or I need to think about it. If you've asked the right questions, it will give you the answers to close the deal. Yeah. Now, people think building rapport is talking about sports, fucking the weather, your dog. It's not. It's surface level conversations. But building rapport is asking questions that matter that allow you to close the deal. Yeah. People say, why does it matter if they've been married 25 years? Because at the end, if I've asked all the right questions, how long have you been married? How long have you been thinking about it? All this shit. And someone says at the end. Well, you know what? I got to think about it. Or I got to talk to my spouse. I can be like, John, you and I have been on the phone for 45 minutes. You told me you and your wife have been married for 25 years. Mm -hmm. You said three weeks ago, she asked about selling the house. Thinking about it, you've, you guys have already made your mind up. You're selling the house. What have I not done that's making you say right now, you have to think about mm. it. Yeah. You can't have that conversation if you haven't had the you ask the right question. If you didn't if you didn't do the fact finding. Yeah. So I go step 1 is intro, step 2 is fact find, number 2 is the step that never stops. Mm. So you're always fact finding all the way to the close. Then you go into the, the house which is the pitch. That's where you talk about the house. It allows you to to ask more questions as well to close the deal. Then we go into the offer. But what I do, because I do it virtually, 100% virtual, before all of our properties are being qualified. So I'm not the decision maker. I have a team that is the decision maker on whether or not they're actually going to buy your house. So I'm not the bad guy when I make the low ball offer. It's the scumbags in the back office that do that, <laughs> yeah. right? That's like the car, so, the car dealership, right? 
Exactly. Like, hold, hang on, hold on a second. Right. I got to go see in, uh, to the guy behind the curtain, see if uh, if we're going to get you so this deal. We do that on the phones. So when we get done talking about the house, we say, you know, I appreciate you asking all these or answering all these questions. I've entered everything into the system. What I'm going to do real quick is I'm going to get up and go run back to the underwriter's office real quick. And it's how I word it. I'm going to get up real quick and run back to the underwriter's office and see if they've approved your property or not. All we do is we press mute on our telephone and we sit there and listen to them for three minutes. I love that. And in those three minutes, you'll be shocked at what they say, not knowing you're listening. Yep. So we come back after a three minute hold and we say, you know what? They haven't approved it. They haven't denied it. They actually had a couple more questions they wanted me to ask you. And we, we always ask the same four questions. And then we do a trial close. We, they wanted to know if they can get to a number that uh, you're satisfied with, are you guys willing to, to move forward today? So we trial close them. Then we put them on another three minute hold mm. and go back to the underwriters. So there's questions that people ask. How much do you want for your house? I'll want to hear your offer first. Um, are you ready to move forward today? It depends on the offer. When you put them on six minutes worth of holds and they say the wife isn't there and they don't know you're listening. Hey, honey. Are we going to sell it if they give us 150? Bam, I got your number, bitch, mm. which you wouldn't give it to me. So we come back from the hold. We give a virtual withdrawal number. Congratulations, your property's been approved. It's the first one that's been approved for me all day, week, month, year, whatever you want to say. And then uh, we go in for the close. So it's intro, fact find, pitch, offer, close. Mm. And if you've done one through four right, Closing the deal should be the easiest part of the entire conversation yeah. because now they are negotiating with somebody they like, trust, and want to do business with. The craziest thing as you're talking about this, I, I obsess over big strategies and tactics and stuff like that. So when you're going through this whole thing, it just gave me flashbacks. We had an interview with Chris Voss and we we're talking about different strategies and tactics through the whole thing. I don't know if you know this, but the whole thing that you did is like so tactical, it's insane like the every beginning a part of it or yes without how means nothing so you're giving them the intro where you're giving them the information you're giving them okay so you're interested you're having the conversation they're cooperating they're clearly motivated to to continue the conversation the how part is repeat back the number right so you're verifying yep. that so you're not getting a counterfeit yes or just a complying yes you're getting a true yes they are willing to, to communicate further you go through the, yeah. the fact finding part of it you're finding out their motivation and then it, it, you're probably like, when I was thinking about it, I'd probably go through step two and step three, like the off uh, the house, the pitch, because sometimes you deal with a lot of egos where like, I don't need to sell. I, it depends. hundred yeah, percent. Sure. And then you're like, oh, so describe the house. And they're like, oh, it's beautiful. It's this, oh, it's such an amazing house. Why would you want to sell it? And then you're using the reverse yeah. psychology of the why, and then you're using the tactical questions, probably what and how throughout the whole yeah. process. From why, there. Or why wouldn't you just put it on the market? Yeah. But, but, but yeah, exactly. Yep. But then you have the, the the fourth part of it, which is pretty interesting, is disassociating the person from the company. And it's almost like they're there to be like with you as well. And one thing that you said that's like a virtual yeah. confirmation number, when you call a bank, I was on the phone with the guy who was about to lose his house. We were trying to get a payoff number to see how fast we can close. They're like, what's the number for like the, the loan amount, this, that, and the other? Okay, we're not authorized to do this, but let me see if I can connect you with someone else. We go on hold. He's like, oh, yeah. she's so nice. She gets back on there and he's like, you are the nicest woman I've spoken. This is why I love this bank. This, mind you, they're about to foreclose on his house. Yeah. And I was just standing there. I'm just like, wow, you're all right. <laughs> it is what it is. But the disassociation part of it is so, so powerful. Yeah. You remove yourself. Yeah. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Everyone gets a virtual 
withdrawal number. And they are, what's a virtual withdrawal number? Well, since your property has been approved, I'm one of eight acquisition managers that are making offers all day. Mm -hmm. So they need to keep track of what they've offered and what's been accepted. Yep. So they're actually transferring the money from an available account into a spent account, it's literally sitting there waiting for you to close. Yeah. So it's all fucking, yep. dude, it's, and then you give enough virtual withdrawal numbers out, you leverage it at the end when they say, well, I need to think about it. I, so if they say, I need to think about it three times, maybe they really need to think about it. Yeah. And then what you do to leverage that virtual withdrawal number to gauge their level of interest is we say, well, I cannot hold this virtual withdrawal number active. So what I can do is go back to my underwriters, see if they're willing to keep the money in the account for 24 hours. Should I go back there and ask them that or just tell them to push it over? Mm. Meaning let, let someone else spend it. And if they say, no, 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 keep it active for the next 24 hours, you're just gauging their level of interest. Yeah, I like that. So we get people literally that will call in there be like, I'm calling about virtual withdrawal withdrawal number one two three four is that still active you're like you're like you have two hours left sir yeah. thank god you called now that's so cool i i yeah. i learned something similar but that's... and then you put them on hold for three minutes <laughs> that that, yeah. that wait time is so crazy because cooperation is motivation and the fact that they're willing to wait shows you all right we still have room on this yeah they're not getting fed up and that's an indicator yeah. itself there's more room yeah every single time yeah so you figure someone in the beginning they've taken you, you've you've called them out of the blue right They've got engaged. They wrote all your information down. They repeated the number. They went through an entire pitch. They sat on two, six, uh, three minute hold. Dude, at the end of all of that, it literally is going to come down to money. Yeah. You have somebody that is interested and motivated because nobody would sit through that yeah. if they're not interested in selling their house. There's a method to my madness. I love that. And as we're coming to a conclusion, I just have to ask this because I obviously want to be respectful of your time and you're being very generous with it. Did you come up with this whole thing on your own? The five steps or this sales process? Yeah. Yes, bro. It is a hundred percent my I now this is years in the making and I'm still tweaking it as I go. Like I'm getting ready to launch a virtual solar company. Mm. And I'm taking this exact same model and I'm inserting solar. Yeah. Love it. That's gonna be insane, man. I was watching um uh, an Instagram story recently, another wholesaler. He w always wears a hat, long beard, big dude. RJ Bates. RJ Bates. So RJ Bates said he thinks that I think I, I hope I'm getting this right, that Eric Klein's calls are too long, that you're spending too much time, 40 minutes on the call. He said, you know what? Eric Klein's great at what he does, but he spends too much time on the call. His approach was different. He, he was much more. Was he the guy that you were talking about was disqualifying? Yeah, they all do, but I'll, so I'll what do you, say what do you, What's your response to that, and why why do you think your approach is, is better? Show me the numbers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. I am the only wholesaler right now that is showing my numbers to the public. Yeah. Love it. I have $1.2 million closing in the next 45 days. If there's another wholesaler out there that listens to this and you're beating my numbers, then critique my shit. Love it. That's some good stuff. I like that. Love it. And person, but and I listen. I, I'll spend forty five minutes on the phone with somebody. You know, like and 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 we all know that around fifteen minute mark, you know, if you're wasting your time or not. I have an audience. I know. I cast a wide net of people that listen to me. 
So I'm thinking about the newcomer that has maybe gets a lead or two a day. Mm. And every lead counts Yes, when you're starting off in business. So you should never prejudge. You should never disqualify. And my, my uh, message to all the newcomers is you love the one you're with. If they're still on the phone with you, yeah. it's your job to get their attention and to get the deal done. If they haven't clicked the little red button, <laughs> there's still a chance. Yeah, that's true. So, and, and I know for the new person, they got to hear that. They hear someone like RJ get on the phone with somebody, spend three minutes and click them. That's not a good message for somebody that's trying to come up. Yeah. More importantly, when you're building a team, if your team thinks they can do that, you're in fucking serious trouble. Yeah, and they're throwing away leads. Yeah. The biggest thing I was going to say is that the, uh, the, the key of sales that people forget, it's not about you. It's about the consumer and how they want it. So like you literally just said that right there, right? If they want to go to the fast food, the fast the, the drive-thru, they do the drive-thru. If they want to go sit down inside and sit down, great. But as yep. long as you get that information from them, it enables you to negotiate a successful deal. So yep. those steps yep. are needed to go through. But if they want to go through it fast, they'll go through it fast. Yeah. But that negotiation process is so important because Chris Voss even talks about using time to your advantage. You give them a gap of time that creates pressure where they think it's like, all right, we're staying on sign of motivation. You get on there. All right, I can get this deal done. Are you going to do it today? All right. Yep. Now they're under pressure to answer you right there. And then you go back again, another three minutes. They're staying on. They are going to do the deal most probably. It comes down to numbers. They come back again. It's, a, it's yeah. a qualifying process for you without having to ask any more slick questions or anything else like that. And it puts you in a position of power more than anything else. Love that. Yep. Love yep. It. But well, I think this was wildly beneficial for everybody who's going to see it man we're 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 thanks eric we're psyched to to spend some time with you thank you so much i know your time's valuable keep doing what you're doing man you're inspiring people to be Appreciate courageous with their stories so thanks brother thank you man thank you guys so much for having me honestly it's been an absolute honor you have any events or anything coming up uh virtual events in-person events that you wanted to just put out there I mean, I'm speaking at a few events here next month, uh, wholesaling live and the real business owners, uh, both out of, uh, both events are in Texas, but and what's well, the best way for someone to reach out to you if they want to connect the Eric Klein Instagram. Sweet. Love it, man. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate you, brother.